Clearly, antibody drug conjugates have taken breast cancer by storm initially with HER2 positive, and now we're seeing it really infiltrate triple negative and even hormone receptor positive for TROPE2 ADCs or HER2-directed ADCs for HER2 low. Welcome to the RMBC Life podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. Hello, friends. I'm Victoria Goldberg. And welcome to another episode of our series, Road to a Cure. About six months ago, I attended my first American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting, more commonly referred to as ASCO, in Chicago. Among the 40,000 in attendance, there were oncologists, researchers, nonprofits, industry, and most importantly, my patient advocate friends. There was so much excitement and promise in the air. I could not help but think that everyone in attendance was trying collectively to expand the frontiers of cancer research and change what it means to receive a cancer diagnosis for us, cancer patients. I was very lucky to be in the audience during the practice-changing and standing ovation-garnering announcement of the Destiny Breast 04 trial and the emergence of a new breast cancer subcategory, her too low, that accounts for 50 to 60% of all breast tumors. It's almost November now, and I'm getting ready to head to another annual event in oncology, the San Antonio Breast Cancer Conference. But in my mind, I'm still reflecting on and absorbing what I learned at ESCO. I have enlisted the friends of this podcast and the sharpest minds in breast oncology, as well as my amazing co-hosts, to help us break down the major presentations from ASCO 2022. In our discussion, Kate Fitz, Linda Weatherby, and I are joined by four leaders in the field, Dr. Stephanie Graff, Dr. Hope Rugo, Dr. Sarah Hurwitz, and Dr. Kevin Kalinsky. Antibody drug conjugates are emerging as potential game changers in the treatment of breast cancer. So far, we've had approval of HER2-directed ADCs in HER2-positive breast cancer and antitrop 2 ADC, Sacituzumab Gavitacan, in triple-negative breast cancer. This year, two important trials, TROPIC-SO2 and DESTINY-04, have been reported out at ESCO. In the first part of our two-part Road to a Cure series entitled ASCO 22, When the Dust Settles, we will ask Dr. Graf and Dr. Rugo to weigh in on the question, will ADCs change MBC? No doubt. For many, the high point of ASCO 2022 occurred in the plenary session where Dr. Shanu Modi presented the results of the Destiny Breast 04 trial of Tristuzumab Duraxtecan in her two low metastatic breast cancer. The results in terms of progression-free and overall survival were extraordinary, 
especially when viewed in the context of a field where results with this potential are rarely seen. On the next day after the presentation, I ran into Dr. Grab, who incidentally had been named the Kilius Woman Disruptor of the Year, and asked her about her take on the Destiny Bristol 4. She gave an answer worthy of sharing with you. Within a week, after the conference, I reached out to Dr. Graf, and she graciously agreed to return for a second visit to our embassy life. My first question to her was about the Destiny Bristol 4, naturally, and the presentation at ASCO. Clearly was, I think, the most exciting presentation that we had from ASCO annual meeting in 2022, in that you saw improved overall survival for patients with metastatic breast cancer in an entirely new definition of the disease, using an antibody drug conjugate, significant improvements for both people that were classically considered triple negative or hormone receptor positive, you know, all of those things are really exciting and important and worth talking about and made it practice changing. That said, when you look at trastuzumab deruxtecan as an agent and think about really what we're talking about here. So in Destiny Breast 04, what was presented in her too low breast cancer, we saw an improvement in median progression-free survival in the hormone receptor positive her too low cohorts from 5.4 months to Mm -hmm. 10 months. So an improvement of just under five months, which is amazing. I mean, five months is very exciting, but for someone living with metastatic breast cancer to see headline after headline after headline that there was this earth-shattering, life-changing, practice-changing advance in the way that we treat breast cancer, to flip open the paper, to scroll down and see that we're talking about an improvement in how long you're going to live, overall survival was 17 to 23, almost 24 months, of seven months is harder, right? Because what patients want is years. What patients want is normal. I mean, this is a disease that for better, for worse, you still hear people talk about I mean, I still occasionally have patients tell me that another oncologist told them that it was, quote, like a chronic illness. And it's great that we improved outcome by another five months, another seven months, but we still have so far to go. I always try to temper my enthusiasm. And when we look at Destiny Breast 03, which was patients with HER2 positive metastatic disease, And that trial was reported a little bit different. They reported patients who were alive at 12 months. And then they also reported patients who were alive without disease progression at 12 months. We saw these huge differences. So no disease progression at 12 months in the HER2 positive population 
had increased from 34% to 75%. So we saw this 50% improvement. And that we don't have that quite broken down in the same way because we're comparing a percent point to months. The Destiny Breast 4 trial is huge. It is all of the things that everyone said. It was a standing ovation moment. We have an entirely new way to think about disease for metastatic breast cancer that will likely translate into early stage disease. We have an entirely new class of agents, antibody drug conjugates, approved for this new definition of disease. Again, relatively new for both settings, triple negative and HER2 positive. Also at the same meeting, we now have sasetuzumab govotecan. Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yeah, so antibody drug conjugates are coming into both categories. Lots of things that are very promising, very hopeful. What's old is new again, just in the way we're defining her too. But I think that when you really get down and look at the math, we still have so much farther to go for patients. Well, I have to tell you, and I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said, but I've heard from my friends who were sitting around me in the hall where the results were announced. So one of them is triple negative, and she actually started to cry because this is another option for a subtype that really doesn't get all that much. Another friend said, this is a lot for heavily pretreated people, giving us five more months, and then maybe five more months again, that's something. Dr. Modi said that she feels that the standing ovation was in part because of the first time we've all gotten together. And that may have also been a testament to that as much as the actual numbers. But she's being modest. You mentioned that this is a definition of the whole new subtype of um, metastatic breast cancer and early stage breast cancer. The way we look at her too. In the past, it's always been a binary choice. You either HER2 positive or HER2 negative. But now it's a lot more nuanced. Do we have the diagnostic tools to provide us that information? Are we satisfied with what we have, like IHC and FISH? There's been some really nice editorials, and I think maybe Hal Bernstein was one of the first people to kind of say it. I think the answer is no, because <laughs> even the, between HER2 zero and HER2 one plus is a grayscale. So there's probably a HER2 0.1 versus 0.9 that are going to respond differently to trastuzumab directs to there are ongoing studies to look at HER2 zero patients. We'll get additional information. Early data says that there is still some response there and that there's probably some grayscale. And it's hard to figure that out as a clinician. And perhaps more importantly, as a patient, if I had HER2 zero breast cancer, would my first or second or third choice treatment be trastuzumab can. No, I would choose based on the traditional definitions of what I was, hormone receptor positive or triple negative, more traditional lines of therapy. But as my disease started to progress through traditional lines of therapy, 
I would want a second or third biopsy Mm -hmm. or a second or third round of staining on whatever tissue I had available to ask that question. Is there a different component of my tumor a centimeter to the left or a centimeter to the right that actually is expressing her two at a score of one plus that would make me eligible for this drug that showed so much promise in the Destiny Breasto 4 trial. And because we often are able to do that, we're able to easily get biopsy material in patients that have progressed or refractory disease, I think that that's something that we'll see more. We also normally have available tissue for patients. Patients have samples from their original breast specimen. They have their biopsy that confirmed metastatic disease. Someday we may be able to do this on blood-based assays. And all of those things are going to give us additional information about who would be best eligible for this therapy. I heard that, and I don't know if that's true or not, that there are some liquid biopsies, foundation, for example, that actually do test for HER2 status. Is that true? They do. Both Keras and Foundation's liquid assays are able to test for HER2 how well it correlates to IHC, particularly as it pertains to the Destiny Breast of 4 results, is less well-established. It's definitely kind of an extrapolated strategy to get that information. Obviously, all of those tests also test for ERBB2 expression and also test for HER2 mutations, which is completely different than HER2 gene expression. This is actually quite fascinating. And I wanted to ask you, but since you have touched upon it, can we talk a little bit about the differences mentioned and for the lay people, what actually it means for them? HER2 IHC, immunohistochemistry, is literally dumping dye, like food coloring, on a tissue to look to see if there's presence of that receptor on the surface of the cell. And we understandably score that as a grayscale. That's that zero, one, two, or three, because how much dye soaks up is heterogeneous. It's not all black or all white, it's shades of brown and the computer interprets how much brown is there and whether it's the cancer cells or the surrounding tissue that soaked up the brown and gives us a score. HER2 expression using something like FISH, fluorescence in situ uh, hybridization, but there's also SISH, which is chromatin in situ hybridization, any of the ishes is looking for evidence that that HER2 and new protein are co-expressed inside. So it's actually looking for proteins that have been moved together and are co-amplifying. So that's looking for protein amplification, which normally corresponds with those receptors on the surface of the cell. The more receptors you have, the more likely that protein is to be amplified in the cell. People who are HER2 amplified or HER2 positive are people who are traditionally candidates for things like trastuzumab, receptin, progetta, pertuzumab, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, now in HER2, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can also have something called HER2 mutations, which means that you 
are expressing HER2 in your gene signature of your cancer in a weird way. That's rare. I don't know the number off the top of my head. The number that comes to my head is actually somewhere around three to 5% of breast cancer, very rare. And those patients, we typically identify on things like Keras or foundation. And those patients, we have some pretty compelling evidence respond well to the small molecule inhibitors. Things like neratinib, lapatinib seem to work effectively well for them because of the way that they bind. Dr. Modi said something to me, and I did not follow up with the question, but I want to ask you. She said that the subgroup results showed that the HER2 1 plus and HER2 2 plus had the same response to the drug. And I was wondering, why do you think that is? Yeah, so that's true. And that's been true across trial. That's true from even going back to Destiny Breast 01 when they were looking at this drug in a variety of different settings. And, And I think what that tells us is that Pestizumab deruxtecan binds its target, HER2, very effectively, and that any amount of HER2 expression gets the drug to the breast cancer. So whether it's 1 plus or 2 plus or 3 plus gets it there. And then because Pestizumab deruxtecan has that linker molecule that can break off before the chemo is internalized, and deliver some of the chemo to what we call the collateral damage around the cancer cells, even if it doesn't stick on long enough or have a ton of delivery into the cell through the receptor, you may be getting just enough collateral damage because of the way that the chemo is delivered with trastuzumab deroxycan, both based on the stability of the linker and the potency of the chemotherapy, the drug to antibody ratio of trastuzumab drugs to chemo. So basically, if I'm understanding this correctly, numerically two plus and one plus are not all that different. It's the effect of the linker and chemo that actually does make a difference. But it is interesting that there is a significant difference between two plus and three plus, even in the results of destiny breast 3 as you said. Yeah, that's because of in, in HER2 amplified breast cancer, where truly HER2 is driving the way that cancer is growing and spreading and propelling itself forward. It's the gasoline of the fire binding that receptor, shutting down that receptor, targeting that receptor, internalizing the chemo into the cancer is happening so effectively that you see this much bigger differential. Yeah. As you know, I'm triple positive. When I was first diagnosed in 2004, my oncologist did not obfuscate and didn't sugarcoat. He said, your prognosis is poor. And in a way, he was right. I did progress 10 years later, but I am so incredibly lucky. And every day I wake up and I see my friends who don't have this luck. 
when is that going to change for them? And I was so hopeful that this particular drug would be it. But not quite yet. The next section deals with another antibody drug conjugate, Sazituzumab, Gavitacan. I will turn to Dr. George Sledge and his wonderful piece in Oncology Times entitled Musings of a Cancer Doctor on Breast Cancer at ESCO 2022. Some big and small steps forward. Trastuzumab directs the cut, one suspects, will rapidly become a new standard of care in the HER2 low population, though important questions remain regarding its use. In particular, the number of patients with so-called triple-negative breast cancer was relatively small, and while there was no obvious difference between the R-positive and triple-negative outcomes, more data would certainly be helpful. And given the emergence of another ADC, Sasituzumab, Gavitacan, in the triple-negative space, we will need greater nuance regarding best treatment options in triple-negative no longer subgroups. Undoubtedly, we will be subjected to marketing campaigns saying, my ADC is better than your ADC in the absence of head-to-head comparisons. Given the scary interstitial lung disease seen with trastuzumab deraxtecan, physicians will need improved management skills with these promising yet toxic agents. So let's talk about the other one, the very highly anticipated Tropic So2 results that Dr. Hope Rugo announced. And there were some indications from Juliet before ASCO that the results were not going to be as impressive as they hoped. What do you think? I think before we go on to the Tropics 2 trial, we should just circle back to the Destiny Breast 4 trial and say that although the Destiny Breast 4 trial included patients that had traditionally triple negative breast cancer, now HER2 low hormone receptor negative breast cancer, only 63 of the patients were that. The trial was largely a hormone receptor positive HER2 low population, and only this small percentage of patients were hormone receptor negative. Now, on subset analysis, this hormone receptor negative population still benefited from hydroxychloroquine and with very similar outcomes, but Destiny Breast 04 was not truly a triple negative breast cancer trial which is a more aggressive cancer. It has higher proliferative rates. It has more drug resistance. It has worse phenotypic features like P53 mutations and things like that. So lots of things to consider when you look at Destiny Breast 04 versus data like sasituzumab govitekin in triple negative breast cancer. So sasituzumab govitekin has previously been approved in the ASCENT trial for exclusively triple negative breast cancer patients. Back then, it was the Destiny Breast 04 of its time. Everybody was thrilled to have an antibody drug conjugate. It was the first targeted therapy for triple negative breast cancer, except for it targets trope two, 
We don't really test for trope two. We just give it to everybody with triple negative breast cancer. So all sorts of oddities about saxitizumab, govitekin, and triple negative breast cancer. But because it was so successful in that setting, and because trope two is so heavily expressed in all breast cancer, there was this great hope that the Tropixo 2 study looking at sasituzumab govitekin in patients with hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer would do as well. At ESCO 2022, Dr. Hope Rugo presented Tropixo 2 trial that demonstrated benefits of sasituzumab govitekin in heavily pretreated HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer. In most cases, when it is possible, I prefer to go straight to the source. So Linda Weatherby and I have asked Dr. Hope Rugo, the principal investigator on this trial, to join us on the podcast to discuss her presentation of Tropics O2 and the overall survival update at ASMO. I met with Dr. Rugo at 8 a.m. Pacific time, which for her was already two hours into her workday. Sasituzumab is a first-in-class trope 2 ADC, and there are unique characteristics of this class of ADCs that I've called second-generation antibody drug conjugates. They bind to a protein receptor on the cell surface, and then the receptor, when it's activated by having something bound to it, actually draws the receptor into the cell along with the ADC bound to it. So it's actually a very cool mechanism, and it's the basis for the mechanism of action that starts with ADCs. Now, one of the other things that's really important is that the linker needs to be plasma stable. So it needs to not be digested in plasma because you don't want to leak out a whole bunch of the toxin into the plasma. The payload or the toxin needs to be very potent at very low concentrations because you're delivering small amounts of the drug directly to the tumor cell and to the tumor bed. And that's important as well, because these are not drugs that can be given as naked drugs. They would be too toxic. The payload itself works better with this new generation of ADCs if the payload is membrane permeable so that it can leak out of the cell. And that's the basis behind the hypothetical, which appears to be true in clinical practice, bystander effect where you kill nearby tumor cells. One of the key aspects of being able to have a bystander effect is the, that tumors cells like to be next to each other. They're kind of clicky. So they like to all be stuck together. And because of that, you're able to actually have drug leak out of the cancer cell that's been targeted and kill nearby cells, which means that you don't need to have such a high concentration of the target for the antibody on the cancer cell. Now, tizumab govitekin has a high drug to antibody ratio of seven and a half to one, similar to trastizumab drugstecan, which is eight to one. Some of the newer ADCs can be quite effective and have a lower drug to antibody ratio, mainly because of the toxins themselves and the delivery mechanism. The Tropics trial, which randomized patients who'd received at least two and not more than four lines of chemotherapy for metastatic disease. So these patients were randomized to receive sasituzumab, govitecan, which is given day one and day eight every three weeks, versus chemotherapy menu. We also required that everybody have a CDK4-6 inhibitor and a taxane in any setting. That's in contrast to Destiny Breast 4 
where 30% of patients had not received a CDK4-6 inhibitor, which we know generates some resistance to subsequent therapies. So it's an interesting difference. And also, of course, patients were much more heavily pretreated with a median of three prior lines of chemotherapy, and more than 50% of patients received three or more lines of chemotherapy. I have been wondering how you came about having such heavily pretreated patients as a target for this particular study. We're so used to <laughs> the opposite. I think that drug companies don't like their agents to be pegged as late-line options. The move is all towards treating patients who have very limited treatment. That means that many patients can't enter into clinical trials, which is unfortunate because particularly in hormone receptor positive disease, where response is also important and you need to have measurable disease, there's a whole group of patients who have bone-only metastatic disease that's not measurable and they're not eligible for trials until they're in the third line and then they're not eligible for anything and you've missed all of those patients. So the population in tropics is really important. It's different because patients had to be a median of four years after their diagnosis of metastatic disease. Having patients who are a median of four years means that these are really patients who got endocrine therapy and responded to other therapies for some period of time, more like the majority of patients with hormone receptor positive metastatic disease. So why did we choose this group of patients? The study that led to the approval of aribulin also treated a very late-line population, patients who'd received a lot of prior chemotherapy. And the ASCENT trial for triple negative disease with sasetizumab govotecan did as well. So we tried to limit it to two to four lines, although there were a few people who had more than that. I think that this is an important patient population for our population at large. We need to know what we can give patients who've already received other therapies. And it's also important to have trials for patients who are in the later line setting that aren't first in human studies. So that's what really led to this. Although, of course, the next move is to treat patients in the first line setting to see if we can improve over standard of care therapy. I just want to ask you, the sasituzumab gavitacan did extremely well in the triple negative setting. And so I thought, okay, taking the ER positive heavily pretreated population that is likely losing its ER expression by the time they get to their fourth chemotherapy. Was there some thinking in designing the trial to use that population because they're closer to triple negative and they would do presumably better with this drug? It's interesting. I think the population of patients who are four years out as a median from diagnosis of metastatic disease is less likely to be patients who have lost ER. I think we tend to see loss of ER now much earlier in the course of therapy of metastatic disease. And we didn't centrally confirm ER, but I think it's a really important point. Could I ask, in the trial design, when it is the trial drug versus the chemo of physician's choice, how do you select which chemos will be available under the trial. The Tropics trial randomized 543 patients to receive sasetizumab, govotecan versus chemotherapy menu. And of the chemotherapy menu, just under 50% received aribulin, which based on the prior data from a trial called the EMBRACE trial, was better than standard chemotherapy in a similar patient population, heavily pretreated. 
if the patient is randomized to the chemo arm and is unable to tolerate their chemo, is this trial or are others that you're working on offering the crossover option to go over to the trial? It's a really important question that you're asking. And we have to think about this as a population, as a community, and also work with the FDA. Most companies will not allow crossover because the gold standard, and we saw this in tropics, is survival. So there's a lot of concern about having crossover and losing the survival advantage and then not being able to market your drug. And I suppose in the end, you're not able to benefit the population to quite the same degree. How do we balance against the needs of the individual patient where we are fiercely protecting our patients and trying to have access to drug? It's just a very tough situation. And I will say, I think Tropics illustrates this very nicely in that the progression-free survival was modest, although I think very important with our landmark analyses, but the overall survival was a critical endpoint. It was a critical endpoint for Destiny Breast 04, as you could see in patients who were less heavily pretreated and had centrally confirmed HER2 low disease. And if you allow crossover, your survival advantage is quite likely to go away for a drug that otherwise wouldn't be given in that situation. And you haven't shown that it's better if you're doing a trial like that than standard therapy. One other quick question that we do want to clarify as the trials move toward clinic, there is not a test for TROPE 2. Is that right? You can test for TROPE 2, but it's not validated as any kind of a predictor for activity. Most cancers, 80% express TROPE 2, and there is a bystander effect. So we don't know that there's a subset that won't respond because they don't express TROPE 2. That has not been shown. Right now, it's not recommended as a test. Let's move on to the results. And most importantly, I would really like to hear what you presented at ASMO for the overall survival, because that was quite impressive, I thought. And I was very excited to see that, especially for this heavily pretreated group. The statistical design is being used with a lot of trials now where it's hierarchical. So your first endpoint is progression-free survival in the intent to treat population. If you reach significance there, you can look at the next one, which in this case was overall survival. You have to reach significance for overall survival to go to the next endpoint, which was response. That has to show significance to go to the patient-reported outcomes. So the trial itself had already shown an improvement in progression-free survival in this patient population where 95% of the patients had metastases in the viscera, meaning lung or liver mostly, which is really a high-risk population. And remember, all of them had CDK4-6 inhibitors before and the median of three lines of chemo. Progression-free survival was supposed to reach a hazard ratio of at least 0.7, and it went down to 0.66. And all the landmark analyses showed improvement. Three times as many patients were free from progression at one year who had sasetizumab, but the median difference was only 1.5 months. And so the question is whether or not that's clinically meaningful. But I think that the differences at 6, 9, and 12 months that are so clinically relevant are due to the fact with the small median difference that 20% of the patients had progressed regardless of treatment by the first scan 
because they had been so heavily pretreated and we can't select out the patients who truly benefit. So on that first analysis, it was the first interim analysis of overall survival, we saw a numeric non-significant improvement, but we had a hundred more events actually at the time of the second interim analysis, and this will be the final formal analysis. And at this time, there was a significant improvement in overall survival with a median difference of 3.2 months, which I think is very clinically important. And at 12 months, 61% of patients were alive who had sasotizumab versus 47% with chemo. Before we ask another question, I really wanted to go back, and you have mentioned it yourself, the landmark analysis. I realized just a couple of days ago that I did not know that this was a completely separate type of analysis. And Linda told me that she never heard of it either. I think most of our listeners would have a hard time understanding what it is. So could you please give us a little brief explanation of what you mean by landmark analysis? Yes. So what you're looking at is differences at specific time points. So when you look at a median, you're looking at the total. So if you have a lot of patients whose cancer progresses right before you do your first set of scans, the Emerald trial that looked at the oral selective estrogen receptor downregulator elastostrate had this, even a bigger drop-off. So you're treating a patient population who already has very resistant disease because they've had a lot of prior treatment. So you have this big fall-off. But then after that initial fall-off, the curves separate and they stay separated over time. So what you do is you say, oh, I want to know what is the difference at six months, at nine months, at 12 months. And then that helps you to get a better idea. So when you said that at 12 months, it showed that 30% of people were still progression-free with this trial. It wasn't 30%, but it was three times as many. So remember that most of the drugs, the medians are short, right? Five months, four and a half, et cetera. But it was 7% with standard chemo and 21% with sasotizumab. So it really is a big difference. And then the survival difference, we saw 14% more patients were alive at one year. Dr. Sledge's opinion about Tropic So2 is unambiguous. He feels that for the moment, Sasituzumab remains in the triple negative domain. Dr. Graftig is unsurprisingly singular and quite different. The Tropic So2 study took patients that were pretty heavily pretreated for hormone receptor positive breast cancer. They had a median of three prior lines of therapy. And what we saw was that sasituzumab govotecan improved median progression-free survival from four months to 5.5 months, which was statistically significant in a population this heavily pretreated should have gotten us all very, very excited. But because it's only one and a half months, we all had this sort of blunted, are you kidding me? We just saw Destiny Bresto 4, what do you want from us reaction? Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, where we said, oh, mm-hmm. but this is a positive study in a very heavily pretreated, very sick, Population, 95% visceral metastasis, up to eight prior lines of therapy, many of whom 
me and of three prior lines of chemotherapy for these patients with hormone receptor positive disease, clearly not something that was earth shattering, clearly did not motivate the ASCO 22 audience to stand up and give another round of standing ovation, but a positive study. And in my opinion, means that sasetuzumab govotecan can go in our list of treatments for patients with hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. This is something that, again, just to quote your friend with the Destiny Breast 4 results, gives us one more thing we can go to, expands the list of options in our pocket that we can pull from. And that matters. Absolutely. And Dr. Rugo pointed out, and I thought that was very interesting. She said that if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, the two arms were together and had a huge drop-off in the first couple of months. And then they separated. And maybe because of this heavy front load, progression-free survival results were not as impressive as they could have been. Dr. Eingar, who did a report back from ASCO for SHARE, said that even though he thinks it's a positive result and the medical oncology community thinks so, he feels that it's going to be much longer for FDA to approve it. Destiny Bresto for or trastuzumab deroxycan in her too low had all the things and metastatic hormone receptor positive didn't. We have a bunch of therapies available for hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. So it gets a little less priority from FDA. So we might not get approval for that. That said, I also think it might take a few phone calls and a peer-to-peer with your insurance group but is probably something that for an appropriate patient, we can still add to our treatment options okay. now. In addition, obviously, to following the overall survival data as it matures, it'd be good to see the, the translational science that comes out of the study because it would be good in a trial that had those sort of curves that Dr. Rugo mm-hmm. mentioned to see if we can find a predictor of response in hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer, given the trip to target. And there is another trial that's going on right now. I think it's a pretty big phase three trial, the Tropion trial, that's testing TROP2 with the same um, backend as in HER2 and probably the same linker, right? Yeah, I've been heard to say before that the Tropion drug, which is called Datapetumumab Deruxtecan or DATO-DX. So they come up with harder and harder and harder things to pronounce. Which is why we all just call it DATO-DXD. I have been heard to say numerous times that DATO-DXD is basically the love child of trastuzumab, deruxtecan, and sasetuzumab (laughs) because it is a trope 2 antibody. So it has the same target as sasetuzumab, but it has the same chemo payload, the deruxtecan, as trastuzumab deruxtecan. So it's kind of those two drugs together. And that drug is now in tropian 0203 mm. You're going to see lots and lots of data DXD coming out. That drug has some pretty significant risk of mucositis which I know that they're also working on strategies for. It's mostly at this point being developed in triple negative. In the next section, you will hear Dr. Rugo talk about growth factors. What are they? Truthfully, I wasn't sure myself and had to ask my biologist friend for an explanation. It is useful to have smart and knowledgeable friends. 
White blood cell growth fat are proteins that help the body produce white blood cells. They're also called CSFs, which is an acronym for blood-forming colony-stimulating factor. White blood cells help fight infection and can be destroyed during some types of cancer treatment. Having low numbers of white blood cells is called neutropenia. People with neutropenia are more likely to develop infections. Some people with neutropenia develop a fever, called febrile neutropenia, and some do not. A person with febrile neutropenia may need antibiotics and to stay in the hospital until the infection is gone. CSFs are given as shots, usually 24 hours after chemotherapy treatment, neupogen, leukine, and nulasta. These medications are made in the laboratory and are similar to those naturally produced by the body. Both Dr. Graf and Dr. Rugo mentioned mucositis as a possible side effect of neutropenia. What is mucositis? Mucositis occurs when cancer treatments break down the rapidly divided epithelial cells lining the gastrointestinal tract, which starts in the mouth, leaving the mucosal tissue open to ulceration and infection. The part of this lining that covers the mouth called the oral mucosa, is probably the most common debilitating complication of cancer treatments, particularly chemotherapy and radiation. Let's talk a little bit about the side effects. And people always, you know how it is, they always ask us about the side effects. And given that these drugs act more like chemotherapies, can we expect that the side effects are going to be more pronounced, more like chemotherapy-like side effects? These drugs are chemotherapy. They are chemotherapy, and it should not be mistaken for not being chemotherapy. We know that targeted agents can have a lot of toxicity, but it doesn't have to be named chemo, but these drugs are chemo. Nausea is a big issue with, for example, TDXD, and generally we can control it with patients, but you really have to be very proactive. And I use a lot of olanzapine the antipsychotic at low doses, which can be very, very helpful for managing the delayed and continued nausea with that drug. Some people don't have any, many do. But for sasituzumab, the primary toxicity is neutropenia. And the earlier you treat the patient, the less neutropenia you get, or it happens later. But in patients who've already been on growth factors for other drugs or been heavily pretreated, I use growth factors up front and then go down or up, depending on how patients are doing. That adds to the cost of the regimen, but in the United States, it's fairly easy for us to give growth factors. I think our Medicare population have to go back to the center, but otherwise growth factors can often be administered at home. I think proactively managing the neutropenia means that patients remain asymptomatic. If you don't proactively manage it, then you get more toxicity because you have neutropenia and you're at risk for infection. Interestingly, with sasituzumab, there was no increased risk of febrile neutropenia at all, which is the risk we want to avoid. But there is an under 10% rate of grade 3 diarrhea, which is yucky for patients. So we need to make sure that everybody understands the risk of diarrhea and that they use the anti-diarrheal agent, loperamide. And if they continue to have diarrhea, which probably has to do with individual risk and metabolism, Dose reducing is the way to go. And I think that that manages the toxicity quite well. You don't want to have neutropenia and bad diarrhea at the same time. This is no good because then you can get infections related to the bowel being irritated. I'm amazed at 
How many oncologists don't treat mild neutropenia? If you have diarrhea, then you can get mucosal damage if you're neutropenic. So I think you really have to take the constellation of the situation into account and not only look at one factor. Okay, the neutrophils are 800. You don't have a fever. I don't have to give you growth factors. But if you have diarrhea, you got to give growth factors. So it is a balance here between the side effects. And then there's hair loss. There's a study going on looking at scalp cooling near and dear to my heart that is um, looking at that out of the Dana-Farber. But a lot of our patients use scalp cooling and many have been successful. I will say that if you have a liver that's not working well, you don't clear the drug very well and scalp cooling is not going to work. If you've already lost hair from a prior treatment, scalp cooling is risky because it's too cold against the naked scalp. But otherwise, we have quite a number of patients who are using scalp cooling and does seem to prevent a lot of the hair loss in many patients. But we've also learned really very interesting and unpredictable facts about these ADCs, which is that the toxicity varies a lot, even with the same toxin based on the construct. So for example, an experimental trope to ADC, datapotumab, durextacan, causes completely different toxicities than the tizumab, govitecan. And also the toxicities of dato DXD, which has the same toxin as trastizumab DXD or TDXD uh, that was in Destiny Bresto 4 are also different. Dato DXD causes stomatitis. It has a lower drug to antibody ratio. It has more nausea. TDXD also causes nausea, but no stomatitis. We don't really know for Dato DXD the true rates of interstitial lung disease, but we know it's something with TDXD. Sasatizumab govitecan doesn't cause any interstitial lung disease or stomatitis. So it's really fascinating and not extremely well understood. I actually have also a question related to trastuzumab duroxacan and sasituzumab. So there is an overlap in the population, those who are considered HER2 low and who are HR positive would be eligible for both of these drugs. So how would you sequence them in your clinic for that population? That's our next task is trying to understand how these drugs work in sequence and will they be effective? Sasatizumab and trastizumab DXT or TDXT. It's important to keep in mind that the antibodies are different. So the way they target the cancer cell may be different. And even the cancer cells that are susceptible may be different. And then the toxins themselves may be different. We do use sequential taxanes, right? We showed this in the early trials that you could give paclitaxel and then nab paclitaxel or docetaxel, et cetera. All of these are microtubule inhibitors. Even aribulin is a microtubule inhibitor, but they still work in sequence. That's our next task is hoping to study with a registry trial. And there will also be prospective studies looking at this as well. Presto 4 tested trastuzumab duroxacan in patients who'd received a median of one line of prior chemo. So I think in a patient who had HER2 low hormone receptor positive disease, we would use trastuzumab duroxacan first. And then we would give sasatizumab govitecan sequentially, maybe with another chemo drug in between. And I think if we can do that, we will. For patients who have HER2 zero disease, I would use sasatizumab govitecan. And although the patients received a median of three lines of prior chemo, I would try and move it into the second line setting to try and reduce the toxicity to the bone marrow myself, depending on the balance with hair loss for an individual patient. It's easier to manage the drug as a patient as well. And I've had patients stay on it for quite a long time in the triple negative setting. 
Dr. Rugel, we understand that crossover may not be a good design for the results-oriented trial, but what about compassionate use? Do the companies, would they accept the idea of a, of a compassionate use for somebody who was on the control arm? I think that it depends on whether the trial is ongoing and the availability of the drug overall. In most countries, compassionate use, if there's not regulatory approval from the government, can be very, very difficult. So there is a really big differential depending on where you're treating a patient and what country, et cetera. In Singapore, people buy the drugs themselves out of their own pocket. In the United States, I think if the drug is already approved for another indication, sometimes you can get the drug on compassionate use. The issue about tropics was that we were treating patients very late in their course of treatment. I will say that, for example, datapotumab durextecan, the drug is not approved. So they will not give any compassionate use access to the drug. So it really depends on the individual situation. And it's such a conflicting issue where we really want to have the drug available for our patients, but we also really want to get the drug approved so that we can use it. So that brings me to the last question. And I promise this is the last question. You mentioned in the beginning of our interview that a trial is going to start or is accruing already to test sasituzumab in an earlier setting. In the hormone receptor positive population, we are working on a first-line metastatic trial, so first-line chemotherapy with sasituzumab govitecan compared to chemotherapy. And there's a big time urgency. We have to get that going so that we can really understand how that fits in with the ongoing trial destiny breast 6 looking at trastuzumab druxtecan versus chemotherapy in HER2 low and ultra low metastatic hormone receptor positive disease in the first line setting. That is really exciting. I promise this was my last question. Thank you so very, very much. And please come back again soon. And I I'd will absolutely stalk you at San Antonio and Linda yes, too. Yes, we'll come find you. Absolutely. I'd love to talk to you again anytime. Thank you. Bye-bye. It has become our practice on the road to a cure to incorporate the voices of us, the patients. So I would like to end this episode with a patient's point of view. I was diagnosed initially with breast cancer in 2016 with the status of ear positive and HER2 negative, and I was treated. Last year, I was diagnosed as metastatic. My treatment has been going well. I'm stable. When I learned about these new developments with HER2, I went back and reviewed my doctor's notes and realized that my HER2 status was considered neutral with the HER2 status of 2, which is now considered HER2 low. I'm very pleased to know that should my condition deteriorate, as one hopes will not occur, but that the option of receiving treatment in accordance with the new developments for HER2 low would be available to me and that that could in fact be very beneficial. Hope you will join us for the second part of our two-part Road to Cure series that we call ESCO 2022, When the Dust Settles. Staying 
in the confines of estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, we will ask Dr. Graf, Dr. Herberts, and Dr. Klinsky to weigh in on the post-ASCA challenges of selecting and sequencing therapy for ER-positive metastatic breast cancer. Hope you enjoyed this episode and got a lot out of it. If you would like to discuss this episode or any other, please join our closed Facebook group, Our NBC Life Group. This episode was produced by me, Victoria Goldberg, with the help of Kate Fitzer and Linda Weatherby. Original music and sound design by our associate producer, Connor Kinsley. This episode would not have seen the light of day without assistance from Miranda Gonzalez, Nancy Roylands, and Ashley Fernandez. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Shared Cancer Support. You can find more episodes of Our NBC Live wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Check out our blog and full episode notes on our website at ourembassylife.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Our NBC Live.